Hey listeners, enjoying the stories that we share on Raw Talk Podcast? Any episodes that piqued your interest? Have an idea for a topic that we should cover? Let us know through our listener survey at rawtalkpodcast.com slash survey. We're incredibly grateful to you, our listeners, for tuning in week after week, and we can't wait to hear from you. The survey takes just five minutes to complete, and your feedback will help us continuously improve our content. Again, that's rawtalkpodcast.com slash survey. This episode discusses topics that may be uncomfortable for some listeners, including death and medical assistance in dying. If you are experiencing distress or thoughts of suicide, help is available. Contact one 456 4566 to connect with the Canada Suicide Prevention Service, available 24-7. Additional resources are provided in this episode's show notes. Steve and I have been together for almost 15 years and married for almost 13. So, and 11 of those years was spent uh, navigating all of this along with, you know, life. (laughs) Yeah, I think like something like this, like a diagnosis, Steve has is obviously life-changing in a negative way but there's also a lot of kind of positive things that have maybe come about because of it like you just look at life so much differently now you know and and what's important is so different than what it was before it's really scary to walk this road with him especially knowing that what he has isn't curable right and that we're kind of always on this like I feel like we both, I say, would feel like there's a bit of like a ticking in the background, right? That you're oh, just... there's definitely, there's definitely a ticking. <laughs> there's no doubt about that. But that's where I say like we have looked at life differently. Yeah. We had a condo when Steve was first diagnosed and we sold that and we moved in with my parents. We have like a basement apartment here. They're retired, so they help tons with anything that we need. And it also afforded us the opportunity that we were able to kind of do more. So we traveled, nothing crazy, like just a lot of Caribbean destinations, cottage for an extended period of time, or that's been the way that we've kind of coped through it. And then also meeting other people that are going through a similar situation makes it not easier, but I think like for both of us, it's like a feeling of loneliness. Yeah. Whereas like myself, I don't have someone to relate with where I'm very happy and fortunate that Christine does. Cause like, like it gives her someone to just kind of, cause you're always, you're on your own. You know, you, you're just getting kind of lonely all the time. You know, as much as you want to and you appreciate and you value everything you have, there's just a part of you that's just a little lonely, you know, because no one's going through this with you. My last round of uh, chemo was last June, I did. It was a rough month. And I just, in that month, I, I figured like, for, in my situation for myself, like I had two choices. I can live or be alive. So I'd rather live. Intolerable suffering is once I lose more quality of life. If I can't get out of bed, then I don't want to suffer like that. You know, if I can't, I don't know. Like, it just, I don't want to live that way at all. I kind of want to go on so a little good. And then even with my situation, there's not like a lot of other people's in a sense, like it's not a body cancer. Like, because it's your brain, it's different. Like everybody knows. And I almost like plateau and then I'm going to boom. I'm going to just draw, right? And so the idea is to try and go before that or right around that time, you know, is ideally is what I want. I think anything that bothers your quality of life, depending on you, where you are, for me, it's intolerable. I don't, I don't want it. So. Yeah. And once it gets to a point that you're just spending so much of your time in bed, rather than like upright and out there kind of living life, right? Mm-hmm. We just heard from Steve and Christine Legere. Steve is a 41-year-old patient at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center who was diagnosed with an inoperable oligodendroglioma 11 years ago. It was described to him at that time as a low-grade, slow-growing cancer, which would eventually become aggressive and high-grade. We sat down with Steve and his partner, Christine, to hear about their illness journey and recent requests and approval for medical assistance in dying or made for short. You'll hear their story unfold throughout this episode, and we are incredibly grateful to both of them for sharing their time and valuable perspectives with all of us. My name is Nathan. And I'm Jenna. Welcome to episode 95 of Raw Talk Podcast.
We would like to acknowledge that Toronto was founded on the traditional territories of many Indigenous nations, including the Mississaugas, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Huron-Wendat. This meeting place is still home to many First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples, and we are grateful for the opportunity to work and live on this land. As we embark on the discussions within this episode, we invite listeners to consider the complex history of medical assistance in dying in Canada and how it intersects with the diverse cultural backgrounds of many Canadians. With this in mind, we sat down with Sally Bean, Director of Policy and Ethics at Sunnybrook Hospital and Adjunct Professor at the University of Toronto to learn more about MAID in Canada. So medical assistance in dying, or, or MAID as we often refer to it, is when a physician or nurse practitioner administers or prescribes a lethal substance to a person who meets the eligibility criteria in order to end their suffering. In terms of the legislation, the federal criminal code oversees or sets the parameters under which this can be done. So it's an exemption to the criminal code. And so to be eligible, an individual has to be at least 18 years or older. They have to be capable to make their own health care decisions. They have to have what's called a grievous and irremediable condition. They also have to make a voluntary request so no one can be coercing or, or forcing them to do this. And then they have to consent to medical assistance in dying. In the most recent amendments to the legislation, mental illness as the sole underlying condition is excluded, so it cannot fulfill that definition. So the law permits made now, but Canada's Supreme Court played a big role in this. Can you tell us a bit more about how that happened? So the Carter cases, we typically refer to it, was a Supreme Court of Canada uh, unanimous ruling from 2015. So Kay Carter was a woman that had uh, severe spinal stenosis. She was relatively uh, young. I believe she was in her uh, late 70s, perhaps, as memory serves me. But it was quite incapacitated due to the spinal stenosis. And uh, she wasn't eligible. This wasn't a legally available option for her in Canada. So she did ultimately go to Switzerland to access uh, assisted dying there. And her family brought this charter challenge on her behalf because she did not have that opportunity to access it here. It wasn't a legally available option. And so that really prompted or, or reignited the discussion, I should say. There was the Rodriguez case back in 1993, which was quite similar. A, a woman that had ALS and wanted to seek help to die and so brought a charter case forward. That one, of course, turned out a bit differently in that it was five to four against supporting the prohibition of assisted dying. So not until 2015 was there this serious uh, or significant course correction, I should say, in terms of change in, in trajectory of the law. So there was a big change in precedent from the Rodriguez first BC 1993 case. What led to the court's change of opinion? Yeah, it was quite interesting because the court in Carter commented on this. And, you know, of course, if they're going to deviate from precedent, they have to provide context what has changed, right? And so, you know, they, they talked quite at quite length about this and said from 1991 to 2010, the House of Commons had debated six private member bills seeking to decriminalize assisted suicide. So there was a lot of momentum and interest in this, essentially. Secondly, in 2011, the Royal Society of Canada published a report on end-of-life decision-making, and they explicitly recommended that the criminal code be modified to permit assistance in dying. So you have this prestigious body uh, in, in Canada recommending that this be done. Of course, Quebec is, has always been a leader in, in this area legislatively, so they had passed a provincial law that wasn't yet in force at the time of the decision, but there was already this provincial precedent. And, and the legislative landscape had changed quite significantly by 2010 when this all was initiated. There were lots of international jurisdictions that had legalized this. So we had a lot of evidence and precedent to build from. So a lot of the concerns that might have existed previously had been either disproven or demonstrated that there are sufficient procedural safeguards that we could put into place to do this. So I, I think, you know, there were lots of really important developments that allowed them to change their, their rationale and approach. But it's, it's quite interesting to, to see that shift 
in a relatively short period of time quite so so significantly. Some of the language in made legislation seems a bit hard to grasp. I'm wondering if you can clarify what grievous, irremediable illness or condition means. That's the legal definition that has the four subparts. So that's the serious and incurable disease, illness, or disability, irreversible decline in capability, intolerable suffering that can be physical or psychological, and then fourth is the reasonably foreseeable natural death. So that's those four conditions constitute a grievous and irremediable condition. So what's considered intolerable suffering? Yeah, so an intolerable suffering is actually probably the easiest criteria to assess because it's subjective. It's what the patient says is suffering, just like in clinical care, you know, pain is what the patient says it is. And so in this context, it's very much subjective to each patient to describe what intolerable suffering is to them. Uh, So, you know, as long as they're able to articulate either psychological, physical, or both types of suffering, that condition could be met. And reasonably foreseeable natural death? So it's not defined in the legislation. Of course, that would make it easy. In a lot of other jurisdictions, they'll often have a prognosis time frame uh, that's specified. That's not the case in, in Canada. We don't have any time basis specified in terms of what that means. So it really falls to clinical judgment. Now, that may sound vague and, and scary. It is constrained in terms of peer review and, and certainly legislative review in, in terms of the coroner's office, for example. So groups such as the Canadian Association of Made Assessors and Providers, or CANMAP, they did develop a practice guideline that helps interpret reasonably foreseeable. And so they suggested it be thought about in terms of uh, reasonably predictable or not too remote. So again, still just as vague, but it's a little bit more helpful. You know, you would never hear a physician otherwise use the term, you have a reasonably foreseeable natural death. It's, you know, very much an awkward legal term. We also sat down with Dr. Madeline Lee, a psychiatrist and lead of the Psychosocial Oncology Division at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center, former head of the MAID program at the University Health Network, UHN, and current MAID assessor and provider at UHN. We were curious about the implementation process of MAID after its legalization in 2016. She described how their team built the MAID program at UHN and some of the initial challenges they faced during the process. One of the challenges initially was just trying to develop it in the dark, right? So it was decriminalized and then we had these many months to get ready without knowing what the rules would be. The challenges for us was what model we were going to use, but also the continually changing legislation. Even the name, initially it was called PAD, Physician Aid in Dying or Physician Assisted Dying. I built this framework and I put the name PAD in and everything, and then they changed it. I can't remember what the second iteration of the term was, but they used a different acronym, and I had to go in through all my documents and change that name, and then ultimately it became MADE. And then I had to go in a third time and change everything because we didn't even know what we were going to call it initially. So it's just a small example of how it changed in real time. Similarly, I was creating the process, the granular process, the, the legal forms. And I think initially the, the big challenge was just how uncoordinated it was. That every hospital was doing their own thing and creating their own forms. Dr. Lee also published a piece in the New England Journal of Medicine describing the implementation process of a hospital-based MAID program at UHN, and we'll have it linked in our show notes. But what does the actual MAID process look like? Sally walked us through the process from the time of patient inquiry about MAID to the intervention day. It could be a patient asks about it, so it might be an inquiry for more information. It could be a very formal request. A lot of our patients have thought about it for a while and and might just initiate the conversation and say, you know, I'd like to get this process started. Or it could be that their healthcare provider brings it up to them as an option if it's something that they might be eligible for. So any of those pathways, it it might be initiated and then I'm contacted and liaise to have an assessor go and speak with them and see if they're eligible. So going through those criteria that we walk through in the beginning. And if they're eligible, then we typically do the written request. 
So you have to have an independent witness. Initially, it was two independent witnesses. Now, with the recent changes uh, in 2021, you just have to have one independent witness. So we'll go and facilitate that. They also have to have a second independent eligibility assessment. So a second physician or nurse practitioner that confirms their eligibility. Then the other practical logistics, so finding an appropriate space. So you always want to do this in a a private patient-centered space. Also the pharmacy, so there's a medication protocol, so you have to provide that to pharmacy and they have to fill those, those kits. There's also the IV insertion. So most commonly it's done via two peripheral IVs, so the medications are administered that way. There is the option for patients to self-administer and drink a, a drug cocktail, a medication cocktail, but that's very rare. There have only been two of those cases in, in Ontario in the past five years, so the vast majority really focuses on administration. So, you know, the IV insertion, and of course, there's the actual provision, which is, is quite short, but, you know, once the patient's pronounced, uh, completing the death certificate and, and every case is reviewed by a team at the uh, coroner's office, and so we send the paperwork off to them to review and make sure that we follow the law. Now that we have a more nuanced understanding of MAID, let's hear more from Steve and Christine as they describe the point in time when Steve decided to formally request MAID and start the process. Once he decided he didn't want to move forward with chemo anymore and moved over to the palliative care, yes. um, that's when it was like, okay, well, let's, let's just do the process now mm-hmm. instead of waiting, you know, mm-hmm. because once he's approved, he's approved. Went pretty smoothly. I obviously had a, I think I had two phone appointments with like chairs to make sure I, I, all these questions for approvals and whatever. And they got back and said that I was approved, which was great. As soon as we knew that I wasn't doing chemo anymore, you know, because so, I don't want to, I don't want to struggle, you know, like whatever I have left is mine. Like I cannot emphasize how much like that is important to me. I just wanted to make sure the thing was good to go. And it is. And I just find with, with that for myself, the more organized I am with that stuff, it makes me feel better. Like, it's maybe, I don't know, I don't want it to sound morbid, but like, we all die. Just, I'm going to have a little bit more control over mine. Once I was approved for everything, like, this just like, sigh of relief just came over me because I went palliative. Like, I'm just trying to take back whatever I have left. You know what I mean? Whatever's left, I want it. I don't want to give it to medicine and when like my cancer is the last thing on my mind when I go to bed and the first thing on my mind when I wake up, it makes you really tired. Because then people are like, oh, well, you've been alive for, you know, a decade with cancer and longer, maybe a little longer. I'm like, yeah, but yes, I'm fortunate. But at the same time, I've done, you know, one surgery and four treatments. I'm exhausted. I don't plan on going anywhere anytime soon. I'm enjoying my time, no <laughs> doubt. But I don't have the fight for the drugs that I know knock you down and then you got to build yourself back up. I don't think my body's strong enough to be knocked down because I don't think I could build it back up again. So that's why like, I wanted to do the palliative and with the maid and everything. Like I, I know where I'm at because this, I've been dealing with it for a decade. None of these decisions that have been made are like spur of the moment, nothing. Everything's been discussed and talked about and analyzed. I try not to make my decisions rashly, so I, I try and make sure this thought and ask people, make sure that I'm, you know, especially with my situation, sometimes I'm not making the right decision, but like everything like this, yeah, everyone, the people that I need to be behind me, they are behind me, so I'm grateful. Dr. Lee is currently leading a large longitudinal mixed method study with patients with advanced cancer and their caregivers to help better understand the physical, psychological, and social factors that may contribute to the desire for death and request for MAID over time. In addition to her clinical and research contributions, Dr. Lee published a powerfully raw and honest article in McLean's last year titled, Daughter, Doctor, Death Broker, a MAID provider in her mother's last days. She described her own personal experiences and reflections with her own mother's illness, desire to pursue MAID, and end-of-life experience. We'll have it linked for you in the show notes, and we highly recommend you take the time to read this important piece. 
Part of why she shared her story with the world was to help highlight how complex it can be for providers to assess capacity as people may have both rational and impulsive reasons for wanting made at the same time. She told us a bit about that whole journey and experience. There were so many angles in that story that I was just documenting for myself. For sure, the experience of losing my mother and the experience of grief, but there was that piece about being a healthcare provider and what it was like to be a daughter doctor. But the third piece was also about being somebody with a lot of knowledge about MAID and her request for MAID. And I found myself just wearing a lot of different hats through that experience. And I actually didn't think I would publish it, except Bill C-7 was coming. There was a lot of discussion around, particularly for people without a reasonably foreseeable natural death, how we're going to assess the nature of capacity and suffering. And I thought there were a lot of lessons in another story that might inform the debates. And I felt that particular piece was something I wanted to get out to inform the debate around C7. And so that's why ultimately I took a part of the story and published it. I don't know that I quite captured the core of the debate. What it did illustrate is how hard it is to determine what reasonably foreseeable natural death is. And I think the challenge with my mother's case is that some would have said she did have a reasonably foreseeable natural death, and and ultimately she did. So my mother had Parkinson's disease, and she was older. Her Parkinson's was progressive, but she was still enjoying her life. She was walking to Chinatown from her home every day, playing mahjong. She had a regular gambling parlor that she went to, cooking for herself, living independently. We knew she was getting more frail. My siblings and I had all regularly spoken to her about, you know, maybe it's time you come and live with one of us or considering moving into assisted living, which she always refused. She didn't want to. And the very last time we had a conversation, this is three weeks before she went into the hospital, where again, I was saying, maybe it's time you should move in with me. And then she joked or she said, just give me the needle. I said to her, well, you know, that's the work I do. And yes, if you want to, I can arrange it for you. And she laughed and said, no, she didn't want it. She wasn't ready. Um, She was waiting to see my daughter grow up. There's still things she wanted to do. So even just three weeks before she got sick, she wasn't seriously asking for maid. But then she developed an acute bowel obstruction and was admitted to hospital. And at the point of intense vomiting and pain was saying, I don't want any treatment for this. If I have a serious illness, just give me made right away. Just give me the needle right away. And I was really struggling again with my role of being daughter or doctor or maid provider, whether to advocate for what she was asking or in my capacity as a maid provider protect her from making an impulsive choice in the context of pain and vomiting. I wanted to not be involved in the discussion, but I did tell the doctor she's saying she doesn't want surgery or any treatment. She's actually requesting assisted dying. And then she underwent a whole series of complications. She did ultimately consent to the surgery to relieve the bowel obstruction and unfortunately had a series of complications related to that, much more complex than appears in the article. And there were several points. It was almost her default to ask for maid in an impulsive way, but there were also windows in her treatment where she was stable. And then she came to me in, in those windows, and I described that in the article, said, you know, I don't know whether to be mad at you or to love you for doing this. And, and I knew she was both, but in some ways she would have been preferred to have been spared this, but in other ways, she was glad to have me sitting in that room with her and maybe getting out of the hospital and seeing my daughter graduate from university, for example. So it was a complicated decision for me in terms of how much to advocate for her made request at the time. And then ultimately, when she had the repair of her obstruction dehissed and she was leaking into her abdomen and they had to go into an emergency surgery. And then again, she said to me in the morning, I'm in pain, just give me maid. And I went to her doctor and I said, look, she's asking. And they were going to have the conversation with her because the decision was, you know, would she go back into surgery? So the other wrinkle is my mother doesn't speak English. And so the communications had always to that point happened through me translating and using a family member as a translator is never a good idea. And so I insisted that they have a professional translator 
present for this final discussion of do you want this emergency surgery or not, where she had the opportunity to request made herself. And she didn't. And she agreed to the surgery. But I also am sure, I think, that she thought she wouldn't survive the surgery. And she certainly behaved like she didn't expect to and said goodbye to all of us. And I did bring my daughter in um, through FaceTime and she said goodbye and, you know, told her do well in school and good luck with your life. And she said all the loving grandmotherly things that you would say to all of her grandchildren and everyone who was present. And then she did go in for the surgery, but things ultimately didn't go well. Maid has been in the works in Canada for several years, but its presence in the public conscience is still relatively new. We asked our guests about some of the misunderstandings they faced working in the field. I think the biggest misunderstanding is the public perception that Maid is about unbearable physical suffering, when really it's about choice. A lot of people think of physical suffering as the reason that someone would want to end their life. And in reality, that's rarely the case. It's typically due to psychological suffering. And so I think that's always a big surprise uh, for folks and, and something that they assume it's you know, just being in, in physical pain. The other thing I hear a lot from, from public and, and healthcare providers is that made as a failure of, of palliative care. So if we just did better palliative care, they, they wouldn't want this option. And I think that that, that is a, a huge misconception that, uh, you know, the federal report shows that patients that have access made had access to palliative care. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, the vast majority had, were receiving or had access to uh, palliative care. And it tends to be more uh, so a cluster of personality traits that I would say uh, emerge in, in the prototypical main patient. Uh, they tend to be fiercely independent, uh, don't, don't like having to rely on others, um, have always lived their life, you know, to, to the beat of their own drum. And so I, I think that it's more about individual values and how they've lived their life that really precipitates in a made request, of course, in the context of their health state and condition versus a failure of care. It's more so about a values orientation and, and of course, someone that's suffering. I wanted to do before I even knew you could. Just knowing your end. Knowing my end, because I don't want to suffer. I think once I cannot walk, you know, things I can't bathe myself, you know, stuff like that. Like if I can't be at least a little bit independent, for me, there's no quality in that. So I, I'm not interested. Especially when Steve was first diagnosed, they gave this very broad number of five to 15 years that he had to live. So of course, like once a couple of years passed and then he had to do his first chemo treatment right away, we, we started thinking like, it's the end coming, you know? And how do you prepare for that? And Steve, I think, like it, the whole process of him having cancer and not being able to work anymore and there being a kind of shift in our own family unit where it became like Steve isn't able to work anymore and all those things. So he's already lost a lot of his independence. Yeah. And so then when you add on the illness and, you know, losing those things that he wants to be able to do by himself. I do. I want to have control there at the end. You know, I don't want to suffer. And I know if I'm suffering, she's suffering. And everyone else around is suffering. It's over, you know. This is better that way. Because there's no getting better, so. Although that's like a hard thing to live with after, you can also look at it in the way of like, is a comforting thing for him? So then I'm comforted, Do you know? And that's, I think, a big way of like, also navigating all of this, because it's for sure a difficult conversation. It's amazing to me, though, throughout the process when we've told other people, especially for me, when I've told people and Steve's not there, many of them are kind of like, oh, but aren't you upset? Like, aren't you upset that he's making that decision or do you support that? Like, they seem very, not appalled, but surprised. The thing is, until you've been through it, you don't know. Yeah. And that's exactly it. Like, yeah. I'm, with, I'm not going through it, but I watch what he's going through every day and I mm -hmm. see all of his bad days. Right. It's I mean, when you visit with friends and family and anyone who's not your really close circle, they only see you on the good days. They don't see you when you're having a bad day. You wouldn't go. 
So that also makes it easier to support him. And like not for anything in the last little while, just seeing him declining, it makes it more that it's very real that what's happening. And I understand more why Steve would want to take that approach. Steve and Christine's desire to alleviate suffering and maintain independent control reflects some of the misunderstandings about MAID we heard earlier. While MAID often represents the final step for many people's journeys, the field of palliative care is dedicated to alleviating suffering and promoting quality of life for patients with serious life-threatening illness. We spoke to Dr. Ahmed Alawamer, a palliative care physician and the Director of Postgraduate Medical Education at UHN, to learn more about the field of palliative care. Palliative care, I find, means different things to different people, and I usually spend some time every time I'm seeing patients for the first time trying to demystify what is palliative care and what do we mean by that. If you look at the global universal definition of palliative care as it's laid down by the WHO, it's an approach that aims to prevent and relieve the suffering of patients with life-threatening illness and their family. In other words, I usually tell my patients that I'm here to help with improving your quality of life. I want to make sure that you're in the best shape possible. And I just want you to know that I'm here for you throughout the disease trajectory. We cover different things in palliative care. So we cover uh, symptom management, pain and symptom management. We cover also other psychological, spiritual, and social aspect of patient's care needs. We also want to make sure that our patients are coping well with their illness and their family as well. The field of palliative care has evolved quite a bit over the past few decades. To learn more, you can also check out episode 32, Delivering Quality End-of-Life Care. Dr. Alawamer shared with us what conversations about end-of-life care look like with patients and their families in practice. The conversation can be very different and variable. It's different from one person to the other. I meet patient and family who had like previous experience, for example, uh, one of uh, like a loved one had, for example, cancer or other life-threatening illness, and they have good expectation about what to come, and they make a lot of plans. And I meet other patients who are in need of information, like I know that I have cancer, but I don't know what to expect in the future. I don't know what should I be planning for. So we provide them with the education that uh, they need to plan. And we also want to make sure that we have a backup plan. I usually tell my patient, I am here. We want to hope for the best, but we also want to plan for the rest. So the discussion is mainly about, okay, we're hoping that everything will go well, but what if it doesn't work well? What sort of support? What sort of plan we should have? Uh, what, what would you like the doctors to know about you? What would you like family, your family to know about you? Because what I tell my patient is that uh, a lot of times in the context of life-threatening illness, things sometimes could change. Emergencies can happen. And I see a lot of times family uh, struggle when these things happen because they have to step in and take a decision on their loved one behalf, especially if they're, uh, and the power of attorney as well, have to take a decision. And if they don't know what's important for their loved one, they can make the wrong decision. It can be quite distressing. And how has the legalization of MAID impacted the palliative care landscape in Canada? To begin with, there is the MAID experience itself. It's different than natural death. Like palliative care provider spoke to us about how is it different observing someone dying naturally, which can happen in different way, but most of the time it happens gradually and people become gradually unresponsive, as opposed to observing someone who's coherent and alert, receiving a medication, and then they die because of this medication. So this difference in the experience can be distressing for people who are witnessing that. Now, this is also was expressed even by people who are very supportive of me. They still felt like it's a bit different. I have to say that also some of the palliative care providers, especially people who provide me after having multiple experiences, they actually tell us that Providing me was fulfilling because they felt like they're supporting their patient and 
helping them achieve their wishes. So that's one thing, the difference in the experience and how people perceive that. The second important thing that we witness in palliative care or change in palliative care practice, and it's not change, it's mainly like this, we, we're still holding the same philosophy of care and we're still providing the same standard, but we notice that there is a change in the workload, for example. So a lot of times MAID is conceptualized as like one-time intervention. So I want MAID. Okay, you go for made assessment and then we book made intervention. This is how people view it. Okay, but in the reality, when you're working with patients who request made, they, uh, these patients who go for made and their family, they require significant amount of support around making the made decision, proceeding with made decision, answering their concern, trying to help mediate the conflict and the tension that sometimes that uh, happen between patient and uh, families and. Palliative care provider find themselves providing all this indirect support needed for MAID. Although MAID introduced as a distinct discipline from palliative care in Canada, but the palliative care provider find themselves providing all the support that needed for that. One of the things that also change in the palliative care practice because of the legislation of MAID and the mandate to have people capable and alert at the time of made assessment and made intervention in the past, a lot of the palliative care provider was saying that they could not provide pain medication. They could not provide any medicine that can cause sedation or can cause drowsiness. Sometimes the fear comes from the patient themselves because they don't want to compromise their made assessment or made intervention. So they kind of decline pain management. And sometimes the provider themselves, the palliative care provider, they worry about affecting their patient their chances. So this is another thing that comes very strongly in the interviews we held with palliative care providers. Another thing that we hear is the, the change that sometimes happens in the relationship between the patient and palliative care. So sometimes there is a fear, so made created fear, because some of the patient and family thought that palliative care is about made and they were apprehensive of palliative care and they did not want to accept that. So there is this stigma that happened. There are times where there was mistrust. So for example, some of the palliative care provider who were not providing MAID, their patient felt like, you're not on my side, I can't trust you. You're going to sabotage my MAID. So there is, was this mistrust that sometimes created by the different views and we hear from some patients, from some providers, as I told, from palliative care providers, that actually, in some times, it felt like made strength in the relationship because they are going to provide made for their patient. And there was actually, the relationship felt like very strong at that time and uh, very trusting. The last thing I want to mention is the impact of made on palliative care resources that we have witnessed because of the indirect support that palliative care has to provide for a mate, it kind of created a lot of strain on the resources. And we know that in palliative care, we don't have many resources. So this is the relationship between mate and palliative care. There is some positive outcome that comes from that with the heightened public awareness and fulfilling patient wishes. And there is also some strain that happened in palliative care resources because we look at need as one-time intervention and we did not visualize it as something that required significant amount of indirect support. There have been notable impacts of made on palliative care physicians, both on their clinical practice and well-being. We asked Dr. Lee what some of the main challenges have been for her as a made assessor and provider. I think I've been really fortunate at UHN. I know early on for some providers, some would say that there were challenges around acceptance by our peers and stigma. And early on, we tried to be quite sensitive to that. So the other thing about how we implemented at UHN is that we had, there are different models for implementing it. And some centers use a model where any physician or nurse practitioner can be expected to respond to a request for made from a patient. And then there are centers like ours where we create a specialized team of people who are experienced and skilled in providing aid. 
And early on, there was the feeling that the members of this team should be confidential, right? Because we didn't want stigma associated with being on the main team. I don't think that turned out to be necessary. I certainly didn't feel that that was a problem for me. Actually, the, the more interesting challenge I had was just the nature, how compelling the nature of the work was in the sense of urgency, right? Like I, I actually found that there was a period of time where I was prioritizing made work, balancing usual duties from voluntary made work was a bit of a challenge. Dr. Alawamir has shared with us his personal perspective on MAID. I think I'm public about my personal perspective. I consider myself a conscientious objector because of my religious values. So I do not provide MAID. I do not do MAID assessment, but I do provide palliative care. And part of my commitment to doing palliative care is I wanted to help and support my patients. And I wanted to be there for them. So I'm still committed to my patient and I want to do everything I can do to help them. Now, this sometimes can create internal conflict for me because I'm kind of torn between my personal values, which tells me that I should not be participating in MAID, and between my commitment to my patient where I want to provide them with the best care possible, I want to address their concern, and I want to be there for them. So sometimes it can be challenging. Like sometimes some of my patients ask me to be present during their MAID intervention, and that was very challenging because of the traumatic experience of MAID itself and because of my personal values about me. As a conscientious objector, I'm always trying to be mindful of my own feeling and my own bias and try to support my patient as much as I can. But it's still like, it's not easy. Now, I, I think one thing that is also important to mention here, I remember one time it was mentioned, I think, that if you are not comfortable with MAID, then don't go to palliative care or don't pick palliative care as a specialty, for example. And I think this is a serious concern because in palliative care, you want to be inclusive. You want to be respectful. Usually the palliative care provider act as bridges between the healthcare system and their own community. So if you try to exclude physicians or providers with different background or from racialized background or with different values belief, then this would have of eventually huge impact on the community, especially minorities in the future, because then they will see like the, the bridges are uh, between healthcare and uh, the community is broken. And this can create mistrust and issues. Part of what I want to do, I come from a Muslim background. So part of what I want to do all the time is I want to make sure that the system is aware of the needs, for example, of Muslim patients and how can it be accommodating. On the other hand, I also want the community to be mindful of the importance of palliative care and try to clarify any myths or misconception about me. So this is why it's important to be mindful that you want to be inclusive and you want to have as many people represented in, in palliative care, even if they have their own values against providing need. In the context of providers will still be committed for their patient and they will still continue to do the best for their patient. Whether to participate and provide MAID is often a very personal decision for many physicians. Sally helped clarify how physicians navigate the system in practice. It is certainly voluntary, but there are professional obligations, so all regulated health professionals in Ontario do have standards established by their the professional college in terms of how they have to respond in situations that might conflict with their own personal conscience, for example, and, and MAID is, is certainly a great example of that. So for physicians, uh, they are required to provide an effective referral. That's the language that's used in the uh, College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario's policy. And so uh, that means that you have to connect the patient with information or an individual that's willing and available to provide the service. So that could be uh, referring to a colleague, uh, referring to a care coordination service, uh, those types of things. So it's really just providing access to information. And beyond that, 
there's no obligation to to participate. I'll say that, um, you know, certainly we would never want someone to participate in, in something that violates their personal conscience. We asked Sally what other supports are provided for healthcare providers with respect to MAID. In the early stages of assisted dying, we certainly did a lot of education for staff to so that they understood what to understood what to expect. And we also would provide debriefs afterwards just to give them a chance to reflect on on what had transpired, how they're they're feeling, uh, make sure that they knew um, if if they needed to speak to someone, we could connect them with counseling and, and those types of things. So really tried to build that into the, the process. I think now that we're, we're five years on, there's not as much of that that, that occurs now unless it's a particularly uh, significant or, or unique case. But those supports are, are always there. So always reminding staff that, um, you know, if, if they're feeling upset or want to speak to someone, they, they certainly can. For the MAID assessors and providers, uh, there, there is a community of, of practice uh, with, with CANMAP, as I mentioned earlier. And so uh, there, there's a good uh, peer support network there in terms of other people that are doing the work. And there are also resources specific to MAID for uh, patients and families. So there's uh, Bridge C14, which uh, is a, a brief bereavement group for um, family members that have had uh, a loved one um, go through assisted dying. I think that there's pretty sufficient supports in place for, for those that uh, consciously object. I think, you know, the interesting piece is that a lot of the focus was on those that consciously object. I, I'm rethinking that term and I don't think it's a great term. I, I prefer uh, conscientious abstention or conscientious collaboration. I think that um, that speaks a little bit more um, in a more nuanced way to the situation. But, um, you know, for those that consciously abstain from participating, um, there are, are supports for them. But I, I do feel like there needs to be um, a reciprocal support or a respect for, for those that do provide MAID. I, I think, um, you know, the, the default is essentially conscientious abstention. It's, it's a small number of providers that participate in assisted dying. And so they're a fairly marginalized group uh, by virtue of that, or at least a minority group, I'll say, uh, would probably be a better characterization. And so I think that there needs to be a mutual recognition of that, that by virtue of being a very small number of people that provide this, this end of life care, um, they're equally likely to, to uh, have um, difficulties with colleagues and things like that that might disagree with what they're doing. And so I think that's a really important piece that needs to be recognized. As a healthcare provider herself within this minority group, we asked Dr. Lee whether she feels supported as a main assessor and provider within her institution and by her colleagues. We also asked whether more could be done to support the providers participating in MAID. I do feel very supported. Of course, I'm biased in saying that because I created the program and I put in all the supports. Um, I no longer lead the program, I should say that. But now that I'm a member of the team rather than leading the team, I do feel very supported. I think we've put in an infrastructure where we made sure that it wasn't just the providers and assessors as a team supported each other, but we also had strong support from the institution with bioethics and spiritual care and all the allied health professions. I think as a MAID community, a lot of work has been done by CAMAP, Canadian Association of MAID Assessors and Providers, in developing a community of practice. So I think as a community, we feel fairly well supported. I think the big challenge for the community in terms of support is uh, compensation, right? Because this is work that's done on the side. And there are no, at least in Ontario still, there are no MAID-specific billing codes for doctors to be compensated for this work. And even worse for the nurse practitioners, they're actually not paid at all by the government for work. And it's a situation that really is untenable. We also asked Dr. Alawamer if he felt supported by his colleagues and within his institution, given his perspective. I'm so lucky and fortunate to have very supportive team. I'm just worried that I don't think everyone has the same support. When we were studying and trying to understand the relationship between MAID and palliative care and how did it impact the practice. 
we made an observation that a lot of people who are conscientious objectors, they were very reluctant to share their views and their concerns. And at some point, it felt like it's like being a conscientious objector can be visualized as a stigma, as someone who's not willing to provide care for their patient, as someone who's rigid and not willing to support their patient, which is completely untrue because all the people that I spoke to, they were actually very willing to support their patients. I think it's important to be mindful of that as well and try to create inclusive environment. In addition to providing a community of support for healthcare providers with MAID, both for those who are involved and those who are not, it is also important to emphasize the need for psychosocial support for patients and caregivers facing the end of life. Steve and Christine shared their own individual and shared experiences with psychosocial care at UHN. They reflected on how helpful it has been to have the support embedded within the cancer system to help them navigate their illness journey together. Steve also shared his gratitude for Dr. Lee's support over the years as his psychiatrist. You know, being part of the University Health Network and Steve being a patient at Princess Margaret, if it wasn't for them, like, I don't know where the heck we'd be. Oh, for sure. You know, uh, we both utilize the psychosocial services at the hospital. Mm -hmm. I also, like, through them have learned about other programs like Gilded Club, Wellspring, all sorts of, like, community-based programs. You know, I've been seeing a doctor at Princess Margaret who's been, like, fantastic and just kind of bring up any concerns around MAID and, like, what's happening. Like, just the general of Steve not being here anymore that I'll kind of talk about with her. I have such a great relationship with Dr. Lee because I've been a patient of hers now for many years. We have quite a, a great relationship. I tell her about so many things and she just kind of knows how to make me feel a little better. We break things down. Sometimes she makes me think for myself, for the answers. Given that they're at the cancer center, they see it every day. And so they're just so familiar with everything that comes with it. And there's so many layers to it, especially the longer I think that you're living with like a terminal illness and knowing, you know, what's kind of lies ahead. And I think for both Steve and I, there's been times where we'll engage with either one of our doctors and they'll then follow up with the team, right? There's sometimes things that come yeah. up in a psychiatry appointment of maybe behavior that's happening that then Dr. Lee will say like, okay, you know what, that actually relates to what's going on. I'm going to talk to the team. We're going to use this medication or it's all so connected, which makes it so nice, so much easier. Yeah. And I think even just with the records, they can go right in. They see everything that, you know, the other doctors were writing. It's just, it's so efficient. I think another big thing for Steve and I like throughout this is of course, there's times when we're each in our own kind of corner feeling a certain way about cancer and what it's done to like our lives. But when we come back together and remember that it's like an us thing, it's affecting us. So instead of looking at it as just Steve, we look at it as a like we, because both of us are affected. And then you do feel a little more supported, mm -hmm. like both of us, you know what I mean? Because you're not. Like for me, like I know everyone's worried about me, but I worry about her, <laughs> you know? Which is good, because I worry about him. So what does the future hold for MAID? On March 17, 2021, proposed changes to the legislation in Bill C-7 became law. Sally walked us through these recent changes to legislation. In 2016, uh, in terms of legal eligibility criteria, you did have to have a reasonably foreseeable natural death. Uh, that was one of the key ones. The other recent change in, in C-7, so... As I mentioned, those are two eligibility streams, one where you have a reasonably foreseeable death and the other where you do not. There's different procedural safeguards associated with both of those streams as well. The other big development in C7 is that you, there's the opportunity for a waiver of final consent. This is available only to those that fall in the reasonably foreseeable natural death stream. It allows the person to essentially consent uh, in advance, and they waive that final consent so they don't have to be capable at the time of provision. So as long as certain steps are are met along the way, uh, you have to have a written agreement and, and things like that uh, done in advance, they would still have this option. So I think that that's a very much in an autonomy-enhancing and preserving step. 
that is a significant improvement in my opinion. Sally also mentioned that another significant change for MAID was still in the works, specifically concerning people with mental illness. Mental illness as the sole underlying condition has been excluded uh, from the legislation uh, with the sunset clause set for two years, so uh, March 17th, 2023, uh, is when that would expire. That's certainly predicated on the notion that there'll be lots of work in the interim in terms of uh, clinical practice guidelines and developments around you know, who would be appropriate and how would we know that uh, in terms of uh, mental health condition. So I think that there's going to be lots happening in the next, next couple of years um, to see if, if this is something that uh, either they'll, they'll um, update the legislation and, and continue with the, the exclusion or it'll expire if not, and uh, then that will be an option. Dr. Lee shared her thoughts on how Bill C-7 may pose additional ethical challenges for providers moving forward. I think it's more of a challenge for us ethically in some ways, because we're going to be getting a lot more requests from patients who we otherwise wouldn't be thinking would be asking for aid. And I think it's going to require the providers and the assessors, the physicians and nurse practitioners involved in MAID to be evaluating where they draw a personal line. Some have called that selective conscientious objection, right? Where you can, I'm willing to provide for people with a reasonably foreseeable natural death, but not for those without. I think we, we're going to have to decide where we sit personally on that. But then it'll be a problem because you won't always know going into an assessment. You know, it's hard enough to say no to patients. That's always been a challenge with MAID, but we're going to be seeing more patients who are unhappy with our decision because it's our personal decision as opposed to a legal one. Dr. Lee also shared how her personal opinions and perspectives on MAID have evolved over time. Well, my position on MAID has shifted in being more comfortable with it than I was when I came into this four years ago. Um, More recently, my perspective has shifted again because of the introduction of Bill C-7, which has again changed the landscape of MAID, and again in a way that I think wasn't necessary. The main difference is Bill C-7 has removed the requirement for having a reasonably foreseeable natural death. I actually don't think we needed to remove it. Uh, I think that if we are going to remove it, the government needs to finally define it, because that's been one of the big challenges with Bill C-14, that there is no definition for what reasonably foreseeable natural death is. And so there's a lot of variability across the country. And I would say that there's always been a point of discomfort for me personally in providing assisted dying to people who are not near the end of life, right? And for me, it's the distinction between assisted dying, where somebody is dying anyway, and then I'm medically going to assist them with that because they're suffering in some way, and assisted suicide, where they're not dying, but their quality of life or the life that they have isn't acceptable to them, and they want to end it. And actually, I don't think that falls within the realm of medicine. I I think that doesn't need to be. If the government is going to allow for that, it doesn't really need to invoke medicine for people who just don't enjoy the life that they have. So I think the farther out you are from dying, the less it's actually assisted dying and the less comfortable I am. It goes without saying that discussions about death and dying are universally challenging to navigate. Conversations about end-of-life care and healthcare have evolved over time as the field of palliative care has grown and with the introduction of MAID in Canada. The landscape of MAID continues to evolve with Bill C-7. We hope our conversation today helped promote much-needed open dialogue about MAID and end-of-life care in Canada from diverse perspectives. Thank you to our guests Steve Legere and Christine Legere, Dr. Madeline Lee, Dr. Amit Alawamer, and Sally Bean. Their perspectives were incredibly insightful, and we appreciate the diverse and honest perspective shared by all guests regarding medical assistance in dying. This episode was hosted by Jenna Park and me, Nathan Chan. Interviews were conducted by Aaron Tong, Noral Kabi, Larkin Davenport Hire, Jenna, and me. Our content creator was Larkin, our audio engineer was Helen Yang, our advisor was Aaron, and Yagnesh Lattimore was our executive producer. 
Be sure to tune into next week's episode on genetic counseling. Route Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science and the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts and rate us five stars. 